What even is New Wave? When people hear the term, some might think of generic 80s music, the early days of MTV, and makeup. Lots and lots of makeup. But it's actually so much more. I'd say the best definition of New Wave that I found is post-punk guitar bands, stripped of the excesses of prog and metal, mastering the three-minute pop song with a little something extra. And this music is actually very, very interesting to me. Especially with the start of the movement, championed by bands like Duran Duran, The Police, Japan, XTC, and Roxy Music. But at the same time, there were a lot of other sounds that were coming up around the late 70s and early 80s. Joy Division, Susie and the Banshees, and The Cure, they were taking post-punk into darker territory, and partially creating goth rock. Gary Newman, Soft Cell, and the Pet Shop Boys were substituting guitars for keyboards as the main instrument creating synth-pop and important elements of what would eventually become EDM a few decades later. But all those sounds, it start to get lumped together by the music press under the New Wave umbrella, and not just in the UK. Over in North America, bands like The Talking Heads, Blondie, and The Cars, they were making their own versions of New Wave by taking elements of art rock, pop, and in The Cars' case, 50s rockabilly. But even though all these bands sounded different, they still got lumped together, which I really don't understand why. So, over the next few weeks, I'm gonna take a look around at what all these bands have in common, explore all the little connections that bring them all together. So over the next few weeks, I'm gonna look around at what all these bands have in common. We're gonna explore all those little connections, the sounds that all these bands have in common, and see how many of these bands overlap as well. And we are gonna kinda go down a bit of a wormhole. This is The Tim Gavin Show. On this first look at new wave music, we're gonna be focusing on the UK and the different styles of music that formed over there and were brought under the umbrella term of new wave. And to do that, I think we should start out with post-punk. And already we have even more questions than answers. Besides new wave, what even is post-punk? Well, one of my favorite music historians, Alan Cross, describes post-punk as a little different from punk, but there was just enough there that you could tell punk rock had happened. But what I find really interesting about it is that it basically sprung up around the same time that regular punk rock did. In fact, we actually have a very specific date that post-punk first started coming together. June 4th, 1976. And a location. Manchester's Lesser Free Trade Hall. The Sex Pistols were playing a concert there that night, still working on touring, getting their name out there, they still needed to even sign to a label or even record any songs. At that point, they were playing mostly covers, but they were making a name for themselves, and they had a pretty dedicated fan base that followed them around to gigs, including Billy Idol and Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees. And there wasn't much of a crowd for this concert, in between about 30 to 50 people, depending on who's asking. But even though it wasn't much of a crowd, this concert is still one of the most important concerts in music history, all because of who was there. First off, it was organized by Howard DeVoto and Pete Shelley, who were putting together a band of their own called the Buzzcocks. In the audience, Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook. And the next day after that concert, Peter Hook would go buy a bass guitar, Bernard Sumner would buy a guitar, and they would form a band. Pete Shelley would suggest the name Stiff Kittens to them, but instead they became Warsaw, but eventually they settled on a name called Joy Division, and a few years later became New Order after the death of their lead singer Ian Curtis. And that band quickly became one of the most important bands to come out of New Wave. Also at the concert that night, Martin Hannett, who would go on to produce Joy Division and New Order, as well as the Happy Mondays, and Tony Wilson, 
who was the founder of Factory Records, also at that show, and discovering Joy Division not long after. Also, while not specifically New Wave, Mick Hucknall of Simply Red and Morrissey were both at that concert as well. Going back over to the Sex Pistols for a moment, their manager, Malcolm McLaren, also played a bit of an influence on New Wave as well, not just in the UK, but also in the US. Before discovering the Sex Pistols, he was advising a band called the New York Dolls, who were kind of the founding fathers of US punk rock, kind of kicking off things for New Wave over on that side of the world. And over in the UK, he would manage Adam and the Ants, and later on Bow Wow Wow, after three members of the Ants quit early on in that band. An early lineup of Bow Wow Wow also had George Allen O'Dowd singing co-lead vocals with Annabella Lewin. But he quickly moved on, adopting the name Boy George and forming the Culture Club. Adam and the Ants guitarist Marco Peroni also played guitar on an early version of Susie and the Banshees, which also featured Sid Vicious on drums. And it's kind of amazing how New Wave and punk rock are so interconnected as well. Uh, Susie Sue and founding guitarist of the Banshees, Stephen Severin, they first met at a Roxy Music concert before following the Sex Pistols. And you could even see the look of punk rock kind of influencing the fashion and style of early New Wave as well. That's just kind of outrageous outfits, the makeup and stuff. But New Wave kind of moved past punk rock by being a little more elaborate musically. And they were adding other genres too, glam rock, progressive rock, even reggae and even remnants of disco. The Police, still one of the biggest New Wave bands ever, for example. Most of their sound comes from jazz and reggae, with a little punk tossed around in there too, especially on their early work. A lot of new wave acts eventually even started using fewer guitars and using a lot more synthesizers and keyboards. A big influence on this change was from David Bowie's Berlin trilogy of albums, Low, Heroes, and Lodger, all featuring production for Brian Eno, who was a part of Roxy Music, but would go on to produce other new wave acts like Devo and the Talking Heads. And it kind of set up this new sound called synth pop, which ended up having much of its own commercial success thanks to Eurythmics and Gary Newman and a few other bands. But it was also kind of, again, lumped into that new wave umbrella term. And using these synthesizers, it opened up an entirely new world of pop music. Some people kind of called it artificial, but I highly disagree. Just because it seems easy doesn't mean it actually was. And if you'd ever actually touched an analog synthesizer or a keyboard at all, you'd know how hard it is to get some of the sounds that these bands were doing. And a lot of the cases, they got lucky in the studio, and it took a lot of work to recreate what they found, too. Plus, a lot of these bands started getting a lot more theatrical. Again, thanks to the inspiration for progressive rock and glam rock. Another reason being MTV's arrival in 1981. And a lot of new wave bands and artists, they started making music videos. And some bands like Wham!, Duran Duran, and AHA!, had very elaborate, super well-thought-out music videos, and those videos were playing a big part in them getting fame and success in North America. Duran Duran's keyboard player Nick Rhodes said, video is to us like stereo was to Pink Floyd, end quote. And music videos did more than just act as strictly a promotional tool. They also pushed bands to start introducing video technology, putting more projections into their live shows as well. Not really as a crutch, just something to augment the music add more depth to the live show, really make it more of a greater experience. And there were a lot of very experimental music videos shot as well. And it was all kind of fitting because New Wave music got its name partially from New Wave cinema, which was French films from the 50s and 60s that were super experimental. So again, ties into it that way. But experimental, theatrical, these music videos helped bring around the second British invasion in the US. 
And some British bands even got big in the States before success back in the UK, which was actually how the police got as big as they did. They were struggling in their early years in the UK punk scene, but that's partly because they weren't really punk. And when the song Roxanne was first released in 1978, it flopped in the UK. But a few months later, they booked a 10-date club tour around the East Coast of the US. They re-released Roxanne over there, and it got into the top 40. Eventually, AM Records re-released Roxanne back in the UK, where it peaked even higher than it did in the US. Of course, one drawback of the New Wave scene is that a lot of people remember that New Wave had a lot of one-hit wonders, at least for North America. A lot of bands coming in from the UK that had a string of hits, or at least had a lasting legacy and influence on future artists, but only ended up having one hit in North America. Which I think is completely unfair too. Take Talk Talk, for example. Only song from them that gets any radio airplay, as far as I know, is It's My Life. But if you talk to anyone who makes alternative rock, Weezer, Radiohead, Death Cab for Cutie, Matthew Good, they'll all tell you that Talk Talk was a huge influence on them. Kajagugu also comes to mind as well. Yeah, maybe not a lot of bands are name dropping them at the moment. Too Shy was their only hit in the US. But they had two more top 10 singles over in the UK, and then their lead singer left after that. But if you're interested in them, and you should be, highly recommend their later stuff. You'll love the albums that they made after. Bassist Nick Biggs takes over on the rest of the lead vocals, and he's a great singer and an amazing bass player. He'd later go on to collaborate with Stephen Wilson, Gary Newman, Belinda Carlisle, and Howard Jones, just to name a few. And there is a lot of interesting stuff if you just look past your initial stereotypes. Especially with bass playing, too. Another thing that I think a lot of new wave bands have in common is their specific use of the bass guitar. It is kind of funky, kind of different from funk in that way as well. Definitely a lot more different than rock music at the time, though. And this goes all the way back to Joy Division. When Peter Hook was playing on stage and in rehearsals, he could barely hear himself, so he turned the volume on his amp all the way up, started playing much higher notes, and that was how he was heard during the concerts. Eventually, Ian Curtis really liked it, and it became an important part of Joy Division's sound and later New Order's signature sound as well. But it wasn't just Joy Division. In fact, you started hearing a lot more elaborate bass lines from Japan's Mick Karn, Mick Biggs, John Taylor from Duran Duran, all amazing use of the bass guitar. It wasn't just put in the background, it was up front, sometimes even more of a lead instrument than the guitar was. And while New Wave started going dormant towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s, the sounds of New Wave have started coming back with newer artists taking inspiration from these sounds, especially in some of the more underground and independent music scenes around the world. New Wave also indirectly helped start the UK's rave scene, not just with music, but with a venue as well. In the early 80s, Factory Records and New Order bought a warehouse in Manchester and they converted it into a nightclub called the Hacienda. And it became a pretty great place to see concerts. The Smiths performed there a few times. Madonna's first ever performance in the UK was at the Hacienda performing holiday. Also, the Hacienda also had a hair salon inside at one point too. The one drawback, even though it was a great venue, very important part of music history, it wasn't really a moneymaker for anyone involved though. Often losing money for factory records in New Order, who paid the bills for the club with money from their album sales. But in 1986, it became one of the first British clubs to start playing house music, leading to full houses every night of the week by 1987 and starting the rave scene that way. But drug use became a problem, not just because of the overdoses and violence at the Hacienda. Hardly any sales were made on alcohol because people were just taking drugs. It eventually closed in 1997, 
and got demolished in 2002. A real estate developer tore it down, put up some apartments, but still kept the Hacienda name. They even used the tagline, now the party's over, you can come home, which ended up getting a lot of flack from people in Manchester. If you want to know more about this, Peter Hook wrote about his time as a co-owner of the Hacienda called The Hacienda, How Not to Run a Club. He also had six bass guitars made from wood on its dance floor. But despite all its problems, it still became an important part of many music scenes around the UK. And it all started with New Wave. And just think, this was a small part of only half of what this music was doing. I haven't even gotten to North America yet. Without all the music over there, New Order might not have even changed their sound from post-punk. And over in North America, the New Wave bands over there were doing completely different things, even though its roots come from a very similar place. So next week, we're going to look at what was going on with New Wave in North America, some of its origins, but we're still gonna stay in the UK for now. We're gonna see how big New Wave really was back in the year 1980, in terms of album sales anyways. We're gonna take a look at the top 40 UK album charts this week for still the number one. Still the number one this week. Joining me once again, we have my buddy Scott Mitchell, but we are going to be doing things a little bit different. Instead of looking at a singles chart for North America, we're going to be going over to the UK album charts. Just completely changing things up. Yeah, you're completely throwing me for a bone here, especially because I was looking at the wrong chart for like most of the day today. So uh, this should be interesting. I think it will be. And we're going to kind of go over to the Billboard charts later on in a little bit too. But I figure, especially because I'm talking about New Wave on my own podcast right now, and it happens around the late 70s, early 80s, what better album chart to look than over at the UK in 1980? See what was popular with everyone. Especially because the new wave uh, started earlier over in the UK than it did in the US. So I, I briefly took a look at the Billboard 200 chart. Uh, and like you said, we'll touch base on that a little bit. I noticed the difference between the two charts is kind of astronomical in the sense that there isn't as much new wave on this week back in 1980 in the U.S. than there is already going in the U.K. Plus, U.S. New Wave and U.K. New Wave, it, it's a little bit different. I find with the U.S. stuff, it's definitely more classic rock leaning. It is, and uh, I think you see a lot of um, that type of idea in U.S. New Wave, and just like the 80s in general was pretty rock leaning in terms of the charts in the U.S. anyway, so... Uh, a lot of the artists that you see that would have made their name known in New Wave in the U.S. would have definitely been more rock than anything. Definitely. And that's another surprise that I'm seeing over on this U.K. chart. Number one right now. <laughs> Boney M with their greatest hits album. Yeah, The Magic of Boney M, which I... Would you classify that as a New Wave? Absolutely not. No, no. Boney M is... Definitely disco and R&B. But still, this was the early 80s. And and I get that, like, in New Wave, uh, there was still those hints of disco and R&B and stuff within it. And it kind of paved the way for the New Wave to come around. But it was New Wave was more of a combination of everything. And I think you start to see it as you get further down this chart, actually. Absolutely. I think another reason why this Greatest Hits package was so popular at the time, because it was the first time that you saw Christmas music from Boney M. I was looking through the track listing, and Mary's Boy Child, Oh My Lord, made its first appearance on that. 
And then the Christmas album came out the next year. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen it before. But I mean, you look at the rest of the the album and you can totally see uh, the big songs that they had. You know, Rivers of Babylon, uh, Rasputin, of course, has to be on there. Uh, you mentioned Mary's Boy Child's on there as well. You have Daddy Cool on there. And yeah, it's uh, no doubt that this was up to number one. And these charts are looking super diverse right now because you have Michael Jackson off the wall. He's just starting to get big here. You have Genesis, Black Sabbath with Heaven and Hell, their first album with Dio. You got Susie Quattro on there, The Police. Uh, you start to see a little bit more of uh, the new wave get in, like even a little bit with Madness. Uh, was in at number nine this week with One Step Beyond. Uh, and then you get more into like the pretenders and stuff further down. Whereas you, and it, this is where the difference came in once again that I was mentioning between the UK and the US is in the, in North America, artists like the pretenders were more of a, a, a big rock group instead of being and and not heavy rock but a big rock group nonetheless instead of being considered under that new wave per se but you still kind of see some of those new wave bands kind of popping up the police are on here twice with uh regatta de blanc and man i i, I hope i'm saying this right Atlantos de Mor. I, I don't know like they have they have weird I, I, you're close you're close yeah let's be honest their most normal album title was synchronicity yeah that's true <laughs> But even like you've got the Cure in at number 20 with 17 seconds. Um, you still see a little bit of the rock kicking in further down the chart. You got Iron Maiden with their self-titled album uh, at 23. Um, and then there's even some artists that never made it big in North America that you're seeing on this chart. Yeah, it is. It is a weird mix over here, too. And just looking through here, Wheels of Steel, Saxon, which... Unless you're like a super like heavy metal head, most people don't know who Saxon is. Even see Dr. Hook on here. Peter Green is on here too, which is really cool. Um, if you've never heard of Peter Green, he was the original Fleetwood Mac lead singer. Yeah, uh, we also had, uh, you know, uh, up at number 32, it actually dropped uh, this week down five spots. Uh, OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, uh, with their self-titled album. That was a very important new wave band as well. One of the, um, their first singles was on Factory Records. Yes, absolutely. So, And then you also get in uh, further down the list. You'll see uh, a re-entry from Pink Floyd with The Wall. Uh, you got Blondie on there with Eat It to the Beat. Uh, and like I said, you still get to see some of those artists that you necessarily wouldn't have seen over in North America, like Sad Cafe and the National Brass Band and uh, Marty Webb didn't make it big over here. Definitely not. Or Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds. I never even heard of that album until looking at this chart and you listened to it didn't you i did and it's very interesting i think interesting is the only word you could use probably to describe that just looking at the title i mean it w it is one thing i i noticed about it right off the bat is it's a great place to find samples ah uh, okay i see what you're saying yeah uh, yeah i'd have to take a listen to you know know deep into it what you're talking about uh but yeah i it, it you always seem to get those albums that chime in every so often that 
you're not sure what they are and then you realize after what their actual usage was and uh, that they actually you know did have some sort of impact in one way or another yeah oh i just noticed gary rafferty is on here too did you say gary or jerry it's not it's not it's not gary or it's it's jerry i don't know really <laughs> you worked in radio awkward. for how long man <laughs> To be fair, I was never a main host. I always just filled in, and that song never came in when I was doing a break, so nobody ever called me out on it. Well, you're getting called out now. (laughs) Better late than never. Better to learn now than... You know, see, that's what we're all doing here. We are all learning something new, especially that it's Jerry Rafferty, not Gary Rafferty. Eh, Tomato, tomato. You tried telling that to a Jerry. I mean, I feel like a Jerry isn't going to say much. Well, I mean, they're probably used to it by now, but still. I'm just saying, if you want to call Jerry, use a J, not a G. Enlighten yourself a little bit more, okay? Fine. I'll enlighten myself a little bit more. I guess. Also, uh, one thing I noticed here, which is uh, one of, I'd say, more consistent uh, on both the UK and the US charts. Uh, Eric Clapton's Just One Night was in at number three this week uh, in 1980. And you go look over at uh, the Billboard chart and he was there at number four. See, Eric Clapton's entries on the charts, they always interest me so much just because when people talk about Eric Clapton, I mostly hear them talk about Cream or his unplugged stuff and hardly ever any of the stuff in between and even like some of the mid 70s stuff would be in there a little bit you hear that a little bit too yeah so now i'm starting to think okay you know what now i need to go back and listen to eric clapton i mean he's got a yeah not only did he have cream but he also had Derek and the dominoes too that's true that actually gives me an idea for an episode. I'll just talk about bands that only ever had one album because there are several. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you should probably just do like a one hit wonders theme, too. See, I'm kind of touching on one hit wonders in this episode as well, because, of course, New Wave, they spawned a whole whack of one hit wonders. A lot of them unfairly so, because especially over in the, in the UK's New Wave scene, a lot of those one hit wonders over here, a lot bigger in the UK and also in Japan, for some reason, like a lot of one hit wonders, they'll go on to like sell millions of copies over there and just be like legendary. And I, I mean, the term one hit wonder is a very loose term to begin with. Right. Because it all depends on what your criteria is for one hit wonders. Yeah. So I wonder, what is your specific definition of a one-hit wonder? Back in the day, we used to run like one-hit wonder theme weekends on the radio station and whatnot. The When I was planning for those, the definition I had of one-hit wonder was the artist only had one song in the top 40 on the Billboard Hot 100. Okay. And yours? Mine is a little different. So it is similar to yours in a way, though. So I am, again, going very North America-centric for it. And I specifically, like, U.S. criteria. I don't care about Canada's criteria for one-hit wonders at all, because, again, it is very- That's why we are at Billboard Hot 100 right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I will take, for an artist to be a one-hit wonder in my eyes, it would have to be one only one song within the top 40. 
and didn't make any lasting impressions afterwards. Okay, so it's slightly yeah. different. Yeah, so no influence on on major artists because there are a lot of one-hit wonders that were very influential. Yes, just going back through my head, you can think of a few. Like, uh, even one that I... Well, I'll mention this because um, I just took a look again at the Billboard uh, 200, but number five this week on that chart was Mel to Mel from Lips Inc., Right. And really, Funky Town is a one-hit wonder, but still left a lasting impression. It did. And actually, I was watching this one YouTube video all about their one big hit. And, of course, did you know that Lip Sync, did you know they are from Minneapolis? I didn't, no. I, if you, I couldn't tell you a single fact about Lip Sync other than they had the song Funky Town and it was a one-hit wonder. Yeah, well, they were from Minneapolis, and they did play a big part in Prince wanting to get big just so they wouldn't be the only big band to come out of there. Right. Okay, I get what you're saying there. Yeah. So in a way, they kind of played a part in developing the Minneapolis sound that everyone knows and loves there. But somehow they're still just a one hit wonder, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah. you saw a lot of that. Uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and then things kind of died away for that a little bit, and the bands who made it big, as soon as you started seeing that breakaway of the charts in the mid-80s, uh, you started to see more bands have more than one hit, and then uh, we touched base on this a little bit last week in Still the Number One, where in the late 90s, you started to see the charts start rolling together again, and all of a sudden in the 90s, you had all these one-hit wonders again. Yeah, especially towards the late 90s. Like, as soon as post-grunge hit, that's when all the one-hit wonders really started exploding. Yeah, and I mean, it, uh, I, I I think people kind of saw that coming, but at the same time, uh, you, you look back on it now, and you're like, wow, like, most of the one-hit wonders came out of the 90s that people are, you know, listening to today. Yeah. And it also kind of feels like there's fewer one-hit wonders once you get past the year 2000. There are some, but it's like every couple of years instead of like every few months. Yeah, uh, and I think we're starting to see... I do know you sent a poll to me that was on Twitter uh, last week, and it was like, who's most likely to have a second hit? And who was it? There was uh, Eva Max was on there. Arizona Zerve. Uh, yeah. There was a few, and I, like looking at the list, you're like, any one of those could only have one hit uh, in North America. Uh, I know, like, and I brought up to you that because the majority of people said Ava Max was more likely to have a second hit, and she does have a second hit in the UK. It, just, it just hasn't, hasn't made it into US. Here. No. Yeah. If you don't mind breaking away to the Billboard 200 at the moment, some there's there's some funny. Uh, you're gonna enjoy this one, number twenty. Uh, this week, the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack. Very good soundtrack, too. One of the best Star Wars movies. And by the way, I think this week it turns 40. That would sound about right. Yeah, I think... Was that... Uh, it, yeah, it was somewhere around there anyway. Uh, also on this... Uh, well, number one was uh, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Bands Against the Wind. You know, that I think that's a pretty solid number one. I like that one. There was really only... I mean, there were a few singles that came out of that album but there was only one big one and that was the title track against the wind and it was on side two yeah uh on, on that album as well the other singles were um you'll accompany me 
uh, Fire Lake, and uh, they had the horizontal bop and her strut as a double release. And looking through some of these albums, some of them, especially in the top 10, have an H. Well, like Billy Joel's Glass Houses. I love Billy Joel, but not the best Billy Joel album. Not the best Billy Joel album. And again, lip sync, mouth to mouth. Yeah, uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall was at number three, which if you compare that to the uh, UK chart, they were down at 37 and that was a re-entry. So The Wall's popularity in the UK had already come and gone and it was still very popular in North America. And it just goes to show how slow things were to go around the world before the Internet, too. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and you're also seeing still on this chart a little bit more of the um, the country crossover going into it. Linda Ronstadt's Mad Love at number nine. Kenny Rogers with Gideon at number 12. And let's see what else we got on here. The Beatles' Rarities album came in at 21. Yeah. Number six, Van Halen with Women and Children First. Um, this might be a hot take, but I think that is the most boring David Lee Roth Van Halen album. I mean... You're setting the bar pretty low there. <laughs> what are you, are you saying that Van Hagar's better? Van Hagar. Because you're wrong. <laughs> no. No, I'm kidding. That was a joke. I knew some. <laughs> I knew you would pick up on that. <laughs> uh, also, another soundtrack hitting this uh, chart uh, was at number 28, American Gigolo soundtrack, which also had david lee roth on it yeah you know that's true <laughs> yeah we are also seeing like some of the remnants of punk in here like the clash london calling at number 34 yeah that's uh that's still sticking in there um and then you know e- e- even some uh you got even a little bit of canadiana thrown into this chart on the list too i uh, i saw earlier for sure there's heart uh with uh Bebe lestrange at uh, 39 um, it wasn't really CanCon, but Pat Benatar's In the Heat of the Night, if I'm not mistaken, that has hit me with your best shot on it. That song is CanCon uh, at number 45. Triumph with Progressions of Power, which never had a big single, number 48. And uh, Bruce Coburn's Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws, which had Wondering Where the Lines Are on it at number 58. Oh, and Rush, Permanent Waves at number 66. So we can't forget Rush. Can't forget about Rush. Also, speaking of classic Canadian music, Anne Murray, Somebody's Waiting at number 89. Wow, we went uh, way down the chart for that one. <laughs> hey, got to point out CanCon when I can. <laughs> for sure. Oh, uh, stop. Stop. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Bad Tim. <laughs> You you do see a little bit more of the the rock leaning into metal coming on further down the list. Judas Priest in there with British Steel at 102. Um, that's a lot about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and number, number uh, 164, Dark Side of the Moon. But then again, that song didn't really leave the Billboard 200 until very recently. Like, it was always just there. I mean, it is pretty much one of the... Uh, I would say uh, Pink Floyd's biggest album next to The Wall. Definitely. I don't know. I, w- I wish that Pink Floyd's other albums got some love too because they, they have way more. Like, Wish You Were Here. Uh, their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. 
psychedelic rock masterpiece. So uh, I mentioned on uh, the UK charts that OMD Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark was there. The other OMD sitting on the Billboard 200, that being the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. That was that was sitting in the 100s as well. My uh, website froze, so I'm trying to reload because, of course, it did. It happens. Good old internet. Yep. Using, uh, what are you using, like a pager up there or something? It, it might as well be. We don't have fiber optics until next year. Yeah. <laughs> hey, at least you're getting We're it eventually, fancy, though. like Wainwright. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Come on, we can't, we can't just all have, you know fiber optics what are what do you think we are a place with decent providers sorry not sorry wow that uh that cuts deep man it cuts deep it does. It does. <laughs> okay i'm back i'm back yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah that was uh that was at 172 going back to my original point and there's still you know some big names further down the um chart you go or go you got zeppelin in there you got gloria gainer which i guess she really was a one-hit wonder at the end of the day too um oh there was another canadian another couple of canadians further down hearts back in it again with dreamboat annie uh the king bees you remember the king bees never heard you of heard them. of the king bees? you're gonna have to fill me in they have a song the biggest song from the king bees really is my mistake mid 80s or sorry i guess early 80s it was released and um it was very still like late 60s early 70s sounding yeah uh but yeah uh, another cancon group right there and uh bg's greatest down at number 200 yeah so yeah disco just barely hanging in there it's like it's like gripping on to the church for all it's worth. And and it goes back to what you said a few minutes ago, how, you know, you didn't really see that much. Um, you didn't see much of a change until things started going around the world a little bit quicker. And I think we see it when we take a look at this, where there is still that disco. There's the remnants of country on the Billboard 200 as well. Um, you've got the 70s rock thrown in there. And then you flip over to the UK where the new wave came earlier and there's a whole bunch of new wave artists in there. Definitely. But looking back up at the top of the charts, Bob Seger over in the US, Boney M in the UK. Which one do you think is still the number one? Out of the two, I would I would pick the Boney M album just simply based on the fact that... Uh, you know, it was a greatest hits album. Yes, uh, it was the first time you really saw a greatest hits album get to the top of the charts, though, for sure. Uh, and there were some big songs that were on it that still hold true to today. If you listen to classic hits radio, you will hear uh, Rasputin and even sometimes Rivers of Babylon and whatnot. And of course, Mary's Boy Child is a staple at Christmas time. Uh, whereas in the U.S., uh, Against the Wind. The only song that you really hear all that often is Against the Wind. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. I do agree that of the two number ones, Boney M was the better one. But I don't think that album is still the number one. Because remember, we're talking about a chart really? that had Black Sabbath, The Cure, Iron Maiden, Pink Floyd, Michael Jackson all on there. All artists, which I think are by and large a lot better than Boney M. Looking at... 
what people would have been listening to on the radio back in those days, though. Like, Black Sabbath never really had a number one song. That's true. Uh, uh, never even had a top 40 song on uh, the Hot 100, for that matter. Maybe they had a big song in the UK or whatever. But in the US, no. Yeah, like, you take a look and it's... So, some of what you mentioned there, like I see where you're getting at with a few of these, like Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and whatnot, and even Genesis for that matter. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I guess it's all personal opinion on this one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, we're torn on this week, still the number one. Yeah. <laughs> we're both agreeing that the album is good. It's just you don't think that Boney M deserved to be the number one anymore. Boney M, good, but in my eyes, not the, not still the number one. Now we're going to go around to the retail side. I know I'm really just scratching the surface of New Wave, but if you want to go deeper, I have a whole bunch of ideas for albums that you need to check out. Stream these today, find them at your local record stores when you can, and get ready to have an exciting journey through music. For early New Wave, make sure you check out Roxy Music's debut. Features how glam and prog rock kind of incorporated into the early new wave sound. Plus, Brian Eno's early contributions are essential listening if you're a fan of music production. And I cannot state enough how important Brian Eno's contributions to music as a whole are. Also, Japan's fourth album, Gentlemen Take Polaroids, kind of shows that transition from new wave's glam roots into more synthy territory. For a great spotlight of post-punk and its influence on new wave, make sure you check out Joy Division's compilation album, Substance showing off some of the genre's darker beginnings and early stirrings of goth in New Wave. Don't forget to also listen to New Order's second album, Power, Corruption, and Lies, and the single Blue Monday to hear their complete transition into New Wave. And make sure you pick up a Greatest Hits album. New Order did like to keep their singles separate from the rest of their album releases. If you're looking for more straightforward pop and rock-influenced New Wave, look no further than Sound Effects by The Jam, Billy Idol's Rebel Yell, and pretty much every album The Police ever put out. And don't forget to check out Skylarking by XTC. Great album. You're going to hear a lot of great production and some fantastic New Wave songwriting on there too. If you're looking for more straightforward New Wave, check out the album Rio by Duran Duran and True by Spandau Ballet. And if you want to explore more of New Wave synth pop territory, start with The Pleasure Principle by Gary Newman, The Pet Shop Boys debut album Please, and Depeche Mode's Speak and Spell. You can explore more info and get some further reading and viewing on my blog, link in the description. And if you liked what you heard, this is the first in a three-part series on New Wave and all the connections that it has with music as a whole. Subscribe, listen up in a few days when I talk about New Wave in North America, and while you're waiting for that, make sure you listen to some earlier episodes. Learn about how Polaroid photos and the LA riots shape pop culture, and learn some things about a few movie soundtracks, like The Tim Gavin Show on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Just search at Tim Gavin Radio. I'll talk to you next week.